Attention, passengers on flight 1643 with service to Denver, your flight has been delayed. And the voice comes back minutes later in an attempt, I think, to comfort us as to why our flight was being delayed. We're waiting for the captain. We would think the captain's a pretty important part of air travel, wouldn't we? Absolutely, right? Because without him, the mission to transport a group of tired and now slightly grumpy travelers from one city to the other uh, is pretty difficult. Some might say impossible. Without him, the other people on the flight, whether it's the flight attendants, the second pilot, I don't actually know what they call him, or the passengers, without him, we're all directionless, right? In our text today, we find a much more essential player in the expanse of the gospel and acts. Matthew talked last week about how the Holy Spirit fell on believers after their conversion in Samaria, but our text today examines the specific activity of the Holy Spirit without which the mission to take the good news of Jesus into all the world would not happen. My hope is that with this understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts comes a renewed understanding of the role of the Spirit in our own lives, both for us that identify as followers of Christ and those of us that may not. So let's look right at the text. We're in Acts 8 today, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So if you remember, if you were here last week, you know that Philip had just come from Samaria and was really in the midst of something like a revival. He was preaching the word of God with power. People were listening intently and coming to faith in Christ. And he comes from that place of abundance. He's called from that place of abundance to where? A desert. Uh, the word here that's used to describe the road he's called to take is sometimes translated as desolate. So that gives you a pretty good idea of where he's headed. This word also derives from the root word in the Bible that talks about wilderness. And that's a theme that's kind of woven throughout all of scripture, uh, whether it's the Israelites wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, uh, waiting to enter the promised land, or whether it's Jesus being uh, called out into the desert or into the wilderness rather uh, to fast and is there tempted by Satan. And in either of those scenarios or anywhere the wilderness comes up in scripture, that term wilderness, desert, whatever is used there typically represents a hopeless place. And this isn't one of my main points today, so you guys get this one for free, but sometimes God, I think, calls us from from fruitful places to the desert because he wants to do something in us. I think sometimes God calls us from places of abundance to the wilderness because he wants to do something beyond us through us. And I think that's what's happening here uh, for Philip. So we know a little bit more now about where he was called, but I think we probably need to take a closer look at how he was called. Because the text says that he, 
hears the voice of an angel. Now, angelic appearances or, or involvement are not all that uncommon throughout the scripture, but we know there's a lot of different responses to an angel in scripture, right? Some people respond with fear. Some people are speechless. Some people are just in disbelief. But Philip, at least from what we see in the text, seems pretty nonplussed about the fact that an angel is speaking to him, which suggests that this is fairly normative for the time and place. Uh, and if we take a quick survey of the book of Acts, we find this to be true. Angels appear in bodily form in Acts 1, standing among the disciples as they watch Jesus ascend into heaven. An angel appears in bodily form to break the apostles out of jail after they've been imprisoned for preaching the gospel. An angel here interacts with Philip in chapter 8, although we don't know much other than that there's a voice. We don't know if it's bodily form or in a dream or in a vision. In chapter 10, an angel appears to Cornelius, a Gentile, in a vision. Another angel appears to Peter in Acts 12, and we know that this angel took a bodily form because the text literally says that the angel slapped him upside the head to wake him up. So there's a bodily form there. And then finally in Acts 27, Paul, the apostle Paul, testifies that an angel of the Lord stood next to him. So while there's some consistencies in how angels show up in Acts, what is consistent is that when they show up, there is always a connection to the work of the Spirit. It's always, supernatural involvement is always connected to the furtherance of the gospel. So we see that consistently in each of these examples. Uh, Dr. Thomas Constable, who's a theologian, says that whenever Luke, who's the author of the Gospel of Luke and now the book of Acts, introduced an angel of the Lord into his narrative, he desired to stress God's special presence and activity. So we see this in every example in Acts. And I'll, I'll give one little kind of disclaimer here. Uh, later in the text, this voice is going to speak again, and this time it's referred to as the Spirit of the Lord. And most scholars agree that these two supernatural figures, angels of the Lord, spirit of the Lord, are used interchangeably in this text. And we're not going to get into the particulars of why and how they work together exactly, but I do want us to wrap our brains around the idea that um, there is a working relationship between the appearance of angels and uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. So that brings us to our first point. And that's that the Holy Spirit precedes and places us. Because an angel is speaking to Philip here, we know that something significant is going to be done by the Holy Spirit, just based on the pattern that we see in Acts. And from the content of the angel's command, we see that Philip is being placed very specifically on this desert road. And seeking to apply this to our own lives, we need to ask ourselves, where is God placed me. Maybe you're in a desert right now and you don't know why you're there. You don't know why God's called you there or what you're supposed to be doing or that inner work that we assume happens in the desert hasn't started yet and you don't know why. Or maybe the Holy Spirit um, has you in a place of abundance and everything is great and you are being fruitful and feel fulfilled. Praise God. Maybe the Holy Spirit is calling you to a to a desert place to minister, and you keep saying no. 
I think this narrative applies to all of those scenarios. So let's go back to the text and see what Philip does. So verse 27, he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all of the treasury of the Candake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. So the text says that Philip set out and went, and what I think is remarkable is that he did so without hesitation or explanation. And we see in these examples uh, of interaction with the Holy Spirit, a lot of other folks in scripture tend to kind of resist, right? Or question, at least. And I tend to think that if the Holy Spirit spoke to me, I'd be in that group too. Jonah, of all, you know, he did the extreme opposite, went the opposite way, did exactly the opposite of what God told him to do. But Philip doesn't do that in this text. He's obedient to the Holy Spirit and uh, gets up right away and goes. And along his way, he meets someone who uh, begins to give us a, an indication, begins to show us why he might have been called to this place. Uh, he meets this very inter interesting character as he walks through the desert. desert. Um, the first identifier that we're given about this man is that he's Ethiopian. And uh, Ethiopia is a modern country that we're fairly familiar with, right? It's in Northeast Africa. Um, but the biblical Ethiopia was actually a broader kingdom. It encompassed a lot more space. So um, biblical Ethiopia actually rests in what is now South Sudan. Um, and in biblical times, when the world was relatively large, and what I mean by that is that people operated within a pretty small radius, um, and the believers are placed in the middle of the Roman Empire, which is pretty insular, there, someone from Ethiopia really represents the ends of the earth, right? Um, and so if you remember from Acts 1, the mandate that's given to the apostles as Jesus ascends into heaven to take the good news of Jesus into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, we start to get a picture of maybe why this meeting has come together. So the text goes on to identify the Ethiopian further as a eunuch. Now, I'm just going to acknowledge right from the jump that the next few minutes are going to be a little delicate, uh, but I believe this, <laughs> I understand the irony of a woman preaching on a eunuch is like not lost on me. I, <laughs> I understand this, but I believe this particular attribute of this man is very important to what, uh, what this text has to say to us today. So we're just going to dive right in. Is everyone okay with that? All right, cool. Um, so in case you're not familiar with the term, a eunuch is someone in ancient times that was commonly understood to be a man that had either voluntarily or involuntarily been castrated. And I say voluntary, I, I'm sure people are like voluntarily, no one would ever sign up for this. <laughs> However, there is a very good reason to believe that this man actually did because of what we know about his job. So the text says that he is a court treasurer of Ethiopia, which is a kingdom that in that time was traditionally run by women. So uh, the king in that culture was venerated like a god and was considered too important to run the affairs of the kingdom. So that was the queen's job. Kind of cool, I think, but um, in... <laughs> And so 
what we know about that point in time is that it was actually fairly common for male court officials to undergo this physical procedure so as to remove themselves from, the, from being a political threat, right? Now, bear with me here. We don't know whether this is like a specific scenario or just paranoia, but the concern was that male officials could attempt to unseat the king by seducing, impregnating the queen, right? And, and taking power from there. So at some point, it was decided that the easiest solution to this problem was just to castrate all the men. I don't know who was responsible for that decision, but that's how it went. And so suffice it to say that this man is extremely committed to his job. <laughs> but this commitment comes, we find, at a great cost to him. One commentator writes, Though a unit could have a high social status and occupy a position of great responsibility in a government, in the societies of the ancient Near East and in Israel in particular, a eunuch was thought to suffer from a disability. At least ancient society's response to his condition imposed a disability upon him. In a culture like ancient Israel, where a person's status could depend upon his ability to father children, the inability to reproduce was a source of social shame. And this disability, we learn, extends beyond the physical into the spiritual. Because what uh, the text in some translations says is that he was pious in the ways of the Jews. Now, from this definition, an original reader of the text uh, would understand uh, the eunuch to be what is called, or what they would call a God-fearer. Um, and we'll meet another important God-fearer in Acts 10 and probably get into the implications of that a bit more. But the basic idea here is that a God-fearer is someone who's not ethnically Jewish, but has uh, believed in the God of the Jewish people, and, but has not been received into their community. And this can be for a variety of reasons. For him, we know that the reason is physical, because what's the right that welcomes people into the Jewish faith? Circumcision. If you don't have the parts for it, you can't be welcomed in, okay? So he's literally... Uh, Erdman, who's a biblical historian, says that as a eunuch, he was defective and defiled according to tra traditional Jewish law, forever banned from covenant community. Such people were not allowed into the temple by Old Testament law. God-fearers could go to the synagogues, they could pray and read scriptures, but nothing else. And we know from the text that the eunuch is on his way back from Jerusalem to do just that, to pray, to worship, but this is a really long journey. I Google mapped it yesterday to get some context, be context between Jerusalem and South Sudan. And a rough equivalent for us is the distance between Denver and Panama. If that doesn't seem far to you, just pretend that planes and cars don't exist and imagine the 805 hours that it takes to walk there. Okay, it's a long journey. And so we don't know the extent of his knowledge of Judaism before uh, taking this pilgrimage, but we can imagine, I think, that there is likely some disappointment in making a 5,000-mile trip and not even being allowed in the door. So as we can see, this is a very interesting, complex character. Probably someone quite unlike anyone that Philip has ever interacted with before. So let's look back at verse uh, 29. The spirit here is speaking again and tells Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. 
I don't know about you, but I feel like if I had heard that from the Holy Spirit, I'd be like, nah, I'm good. Um, if you know me at all, you know that I have like a very low embarrassment tolerance. <laughs> I embarrass myself very easily. I often feel embarrassed for other people, even when they're not, which is a whole other story. Uh, but I read this text and I'm embarrassed for Philip because here he is running alongside the chariot just, and he doesn't even bother with small talk. Like, Hey, how's it going? How's the like what nice weather? He just goes, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch replies, apparently he's not as weirded out by this social awkwardness as I am and says, how can I, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip in verse 31 to come up and sit with him. And Again, I just want to point out here that Philip runs at the command of the Holy Spirit without hesitation or explanation. Uh, and he sits here uh, with the eunuch, and they read together this passage that comes out of Isaiah 53. And we're going to look at it here together. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice, who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken away from the earth. This text uh, was commonly understood by students of the Torah, those of the Jewish faith, to be a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And I can't help but think here that this passage, uh, that the eunuch was not reading this passage at this point in time by coincidence. I really think that the Holy Spirit called him to read this particular part of the scroll that he was bringing back from Jerusalem because I think there's a lot of the, of the eunuch in this passage. Look at it again. It, he, talks, he talks about a man who's socially humiliated, someone without hope of future generations, someone who in a culture where family is life, who has no life. Do you think the Ethiopian eunuch might have seen himself in some of those things? So, so he asks, I think he did, because he asks, is the prophet speaking about himself or someone else? And then Philip began, verse 35 says, with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. What exactly is that good news? What, what we know this good news to be is the gospel. And that's what he shares with the Ethiopian, that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 53, that this righteous sufferer, crucified and risen again, has won victory over sin and death, and now repentance and forgiveness of sins is available for all. And in this proclamation of the gospel, we find the culmination of the Spirit's work through Philip, which brings us to our second point, that obedience to the Holy Spirit propels the gospel message. In his obedience to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, Philip fulfills the mandate of Jesus to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and now through the Ethiopian to the ends of the earth. For those of us today that have accepted Christ and been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, what steps of obedience might the Holy Spirit be calling you into today? What area, area of your life, what person in your life is in need of a greater gospel presence? Some things to think about. 
we'll go back to verse 36 here. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Family, this is a beautiful picture of the gospel that Philip has just proclaimed to the Ethiopian. Because the message of the gospel is that Jesus, the very water of life, while hanging on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins, identified with our fallen humanity and cried out, I thirst. Because the message of that same Jesus who faced the desert of death rose again three days later. And in John 4, it says, whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so when we are walking through the deserts of this life, challenges to our health, brokenness in our relationships, financial problems, loneliness, miscarriages, the gospel proclaims, look, here is water. Following this this observation, the man asks a question that I think we often pass over too quickly when we read this story. He asks, what can stand in the way of my being baptized? And when I read this, I hear the pain of not belonging. I hear the disappointment of rejection. Remember, this is a man that ascribed to a belief system that didn't accept him. And um, one little interesting thing, uh, there, you'll notice that there's no, if you're reading from an NIV version today, so that all of our chair Bibles are NIV, verse 37 is just not in there. It goes from 36 to 38, um, because 37 is a later addition to the text, uh, because I think some later editors were not quite comfortable with there not being a verbal proclamation of faith. So verse 37 uh, is an, uh, a dialogue between the two of them where when he asked this question, Philip says, do you confess that Jesus is Lord? And he says, yes. Um, but that's not actually in the original dialogue. We don't actually get that here. All that we know is that they went down to the water together and that Philip baptized him into a family that loudly proclaims the answer to his question, nothing. Your race, your physical disability, your secret source of shame, your mental illness, your socioeconomic status, your level of education, your doubts, Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. And that, brothers and sisters, is the good news of Jesus. And so my third and final point is that the Holy Spirit prepares hearts. And we see this in two ways in this text. Um, in John 16, Jesus foretells the coming of the Spirit and his involvement in the work of salvation, of coming to faith. And in that prophecy, the Spirit is characterized as an advocate, as a guide, and ultimately as one who helps us to understand. Back in verse 31, the Ethiopian eunuch asks how he can understand the truth of the scriptures without a guide. And through the obedience of Philip, the Holy Spirit guides him into a saving understanding of the gospel. He, um, I think the Holy Spirit here prepared the heart of the Ethiopian eunuch to receive the gospel but I actually think there's a second conversion, if you will, happening here. Uh, 
Philip, as a representative of this new Christian movement, is signifying through his evangelism of the Ethiopian that there is a shift in the definition of who this gospel is for, who belongs in this family. And up until now, the only people that, who have heard and received the message of Jesus have been Jewish converts, or, or at least partially Jewish, Sumerians are partially Jewish. Um, but the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch is the gateway to a brand new church made up of every tribe and tongue and nation. This is why we believe in a multi-ethnic church. And uh, there's a pastor here in Denver who writes about the significance of what's happening within the faith community here and kind of reflects why it's important uh, to the church today. And she says, I think maybe that we can't actually know what this Jesus following thing is about unless we too have the stranger show us. This is far more than inclusion. Inclusion isn't the right word at all because it sounds like in our niceness and virtue, we're allowing them to join us. Like we're judging another group of people to be worthy to be part of this thing. Inclusion seems like a small thing, a charity, a mercy. But the truth is that we need the equivalent of our, our Ethiopian eunuch to show us the faith. We continually need the stranger, the foreigner, the other to show us water in the desert. We need to hear, here's water in the desert, so what is to keep me, the eunuch, from being baptized, or me, the illiterate, or me, the neurotic, or me, the overeducated, or me, the founder of Focus on the Family? Until we face the difficulty of that question and come up as Philip did with no answer, until then, we just look at the seemingly limited space under the tent and either think it's our job to change people so they fit or to extend uh, the roof so that they fit. Either way, it's misguided because it's not our tent. It's God's tent. And the wideness of the tent of the Lord should concern us only insofar as it points to the gracious nature of a loving God who became flesh and entered into our humanity. The wideness of the tent should only concern us insofar as it points to the great mercy and love of a God who welcomes us all as friends. For those of you in this room who have not yet placed your faith in, in Christ, what, what barriers are preventing you from relationship to Jesus? What is keeping you from grabbing hold of this thing and joining the family of God? Maybe that's not you today. For those of us who are in relationship with Jesus, maybe the question for us are what barriers are you placing in the door to prevent people from coming in? Maybe, maybe it's the way you treat people at work who know you're a Christian, but know you don't act like it. Maybe it's your adoption of a political rhetoric that adheres more to a political party than to the gospel of Jesus. I'm not picking on anyone here. I think that could be said of both, both political parties. <laughs> don't send Matthew any angry emails. Just um, so questions for us today. They're not easy questions to answer. But what are, what are those barriers? The narrative ends in a really wild way. Verse 39 says, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. 
Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This whole carried away business, Harry Potter apparition situation is very weird, admittedly, but not completely unprecedented in the Bible. Um, the verb here for being caught up, harpazo, actually appears twice in Acts and 12 other times in the New Testament. Um, but the question that we should ask of this text and actually all of the biblical text that we read is, what's the point? Why is it included here? And uh, one pastor that I read uh, thinks of it this way. The emphasis is on the Spirit as the one doing the work, an important theme in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is far more active than Philip in the, in the entire account, and the episode begins as it ends with divinely encountered outreach and power. The Spirit leads him to the encounter and then takes him away. So we see that the Holy Spirit is still at work, even in the endings that he's orchestrating. And Philip continues to be obedient. He basically apparates into another city and just goes, well, okay, and starts preaching there, right? He continues to be obedient to wherever uh, the Holy Spirit places him. And that, that's a model for us, you guys. As for the eunuch, he goes on his way rejoicing because he came looking for acceptance and truth and belonging in the holy city in Jerusalem, but he actually found it moving away from it. And that is the ref a reflection of the missional intent of this new family of God, always looking outward, always expanding, not self-focused or isolationist, but ever and always welcoming. As we close today, I want to remind us that what was true for the church in Acts remains true for us today. The Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to our calling to love God, one another, and the world. My prayer for us as we leave this place is that we acknowledge that even in our deserts, that the Holy Spirit is at work, ever expanding our own borders of what is comfortable and what is familiar and what is acceptable to us, as well as the borders of the kingdom of God. May we as individuals and as a church be increasingly obedient to the promptings of the Holy Spirit so that hearts and lives, both ours and those we intend to welcome in, will be changed by the power of the gospel. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray together. Father, I just thank you so much for this text. I thank you for the model of Philip that you've given us. I thank you for his model of obedience. God, but I thank you even more that you uh, are at work, that your Holy Spirit is moving and active, uh, guiding and leading us. And we ask, Lord, to be conformed um, to your image. And God, give us hearts that are obedient uh, to you. May we say yes without hesitation or explanation to your Holy Spirit. And God, as we encounter Ethiopian eunuchs and those like him all around us, may we not put barriers in front of him. May we be barrier breakers, God, in that we would be welcoming always and ever into your kingdom, God. And we thank you for who you are and what you've done. And thank you for your good gospel that is water in the desert. In your name we pray. Amen.